But they obviously came back and said there's a, a, a manufacturing renaissance going on. Yeah, that there were positive trends happening in manufacturing in the U.S. They still said you're crazy to go back, but there were positive things. I knew, though, I was taking over a business that was still running as if it was in 1970. Wood paneled walls, the place had been smoked in for 40 years, you know, white paint was now stained yellow. The ceiling uh, tiles in the office. Ceiling were all tiles, brown, all the yep. old furniture, yep. no new equipment um, in the place. And so it was going to be as much of a redo and a true startup from the inside as well as the outside. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metal Working Nation. This is Making Chips, where we talk all things metalworking, engineering and design, production and tooling combined with business best practices, technology, marketing, news, and new media for manufacturing professionals. Here are your hosts, business owners, metalworking experts, and guys who get dirty on the factory floor, Jim Carr and Jason Zanger. Now, let's make some chips. Hello, Metalworking Nation. This is Making Chips. We're coming to you from the Windy City. This is the podcast to equip manufacturing leaders. And we are in the studio with my good friend, Jim Carr. Hey, Jason. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Jim. It's been a great day. It has been a good day. And it's day. not windy today. No, it's not. No. No. It's you beautiful know, today. We're do you know why they call, they call it the Windy City? I it's don't. not because of the weather. Please elaborate. Okay, I will. Uh, I'm a big fan of Chicago. So it's called the Windy City because of the politicians. I did hear you didn't know that? that? Okay. No, I did hear well, that before. There you go. I just, I just didn't have that in the back of my fun uh, fact of the day. My back of my brain. Yeah. So we're it's a little rusty back there. We're also here in the studio with Patricia Miller, and we're going to interview Patricia about why, as a senior, experienced marketing executive, she would want to get into the manufacturing industry. So yeah. welcome, Patricia. Thank you. So Jim, do you have any manufacturing news? I, I don't. have a feeling you're going to tell me no. I don't. Okay. Not today. All right. So Not we're going to scratch that. No. And we've actually gotten some good feedback from our listeners that uh, they want to see manufacturing news as a separate segment. So I didn't even tell you yeah, about that, be- Jim, but I think we're going to do that. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. I think that we can give our listeners maybe five minutes of uh, manufacturing news a week that we think is relevant to what they're looking to get. Some people may want to see it. And if, if they don't like it, let us know. We're, we're easy to get along with. Yeah, you got it. So I'm going to introduce Patricia. Patricia is the CEO of Matrix 4. They're a design, engineering, tooling, and manufacturing facility located in Woodstock, Illinois. Patricia is also a resident of Chicago along with me. So um, we're sort of neighbors. Patricia's got very diverse experience, which is why we're bringing her on the show. We want our audience to learn from her experience, which has, for the most part, been outside of the manufacturing industry. So Patricia has her undergraduate degree from the University of Iowa and her graduate degree from the University of College of London. She took over the reins of Matrix 4 after working at Eli Lilly and having some experience in Fortune 500, Pharma, and Biotech. And we just think that Patricia has a lot to add to our audience, some experience in the marketing industry that we think that uh, our audience is going to learn from. So welcome, Patricia. 
Thank you. It's great yeah, to I be to- here. I totally agree. I think uh, it's going to be a great conversation today, and I'm looking forward to interviewing my good friend, Patricia. I agree with you 100%. I think she has relevant information to give to our um, listeners, and we certainly would like to hear some positive feedback after our show. And um, if anybody has any questions, please uh, let us know. But anyway, Patricia, again, thank you. Welcome. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. You just just got in from D.C. and uh, took the long drive over here to our studio here in suburban Chicago. Yeah, so what were you doing in D.C.? The National Association of Manufacturing had a summit there, and I was engaged in going, getting a little bit more um, invested in what's going on at a national level within the industry, not just my company alone. Okay, so like kind of a political summit? It was a political summit, but their desire was to uh, start looking at broader demographics in manufacturing. So I went to a NAM event uh, last month in Chicago, and I think I was the only woman under 55 in the audience. Really? And they are looking to create poster children for manufacturing moving forward that are not just a stereotypical 55-plus white man. Gotcha. So, Patricia, again, welcome. It's, it's really a pleasure to have you here today, and um, I, I know you're going to bring some value. But tell us a little bit about Matrix 4. You know, give us your elevator pitch. What do you do, and what do you do in your day-to-day role? Sure. So Matrix 4 is a design and manufacturing house in the suburbs, almost the sticks of um, Chicago, about 55 miles northwest. And the Roman numeral 4 in Matrix 4 stands for design, engineering, tooling, and manufacturing. One, two, three, four. Got it. Yes, exactly. And it's been around since 1976. My grandpa started the company. He was a tool maker, self-made guy back in the 70s when there was a plethora of work. Made sense to start a business and had a little bit of ingenuity and entrepreneurial spirit, bought a machine and started Matrix 4. So he had a lot of desire. He had a lot of passion. He had a a lot of mechanical aptitude and got lucky a little bit down a little bit through the, the ways as well. What Absolutely. was that first machine that he bought? Do you know? I don't know, but I'm. I know right now there's a lot of Van Dorns in there. So if Van Dorn was around in 1976. My bet would be it's a Van okay. Dorn. Great. Wow. Yeah. So your Matrix Four is in Woodstock, Illinois. You you're currently employ about 25 employees. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yep. And, and about how many square feet is out there in Woodstock? Eighty nine thousand square 000. feet with a warehouse. Okay. Fantastic. So quickly, bring you know you you kind of. Uh, gave us a timeline. Can you like give us a little deeper dive into what Matrix was doing back then compared to what they're doing right now? I mean, obviously, the technology has evolved over those years. It's been 40 plus years or almost nearly 40 years. Tell us a little bit about what your grandfather was doing at that time. Sure. So he was a tooling engineer, started out that way, self-made, went through an apprenticeship, became a journeyman, was managing a tool room, and started getting engaged in patents. And my grandpa invented the plastic hose clamp. And at the time, he utilized that to build his business. So he built the tool in the shop that he was managing. My mom worked night shift at another manufacturer when she was 17. She brought the tool into her manufacturing shop, ran it second shift, and then they would sell the plastic hose clamps out of their house. So were they contracting space, time, time, yeah, time on the machine? Your mm-hmm. mom's, where she worked 
Yes. What is it? Is an admin or? Well, no, she worked at, my mom's a processing engineer. So she worked on the factory floor, um, ran machines and my grandpa gave her the mold that she then brought to her facility. She was working in high school on night shift to make money. They were a lower middle class and she would produce the hose clamps, bring them home. They'd keep them in the basement. And then when they got orders on the hose clamps, the kids would count them up in the basement and bring them up as if they were already packaged. Cool. And what year would you think that would be? I think that was in the early 70s. And then as he started to gain traction, mostly in the automotive industry with hose clamps, sure, he then bought a small facility focused primarily on the tool building side of things. But as he grew, he then went into the injection manufacturing side of things. Well, that was the normal evolution of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, so started out with his own proprietary products across hose clamps, some solution water valves, and then transitioned the company to be more engaged on what the customer was wanting and developing the products with the customer. So went through design, engineering, tooling, and then manufactured on the back end. Does he still have active patents on those products? We still manufacture the legacy products, wow. but the patents are old now. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay, I didn't. Yeah. I, so you're growing up as this child, your mom's in the business, your grandfather, and you're, you're, you're probably seeing this and hearing this. It's in your blood. You're, you're, you're living it. And then you decided you get this wonderful education, and you go through this Fortune 500, this pharma experience, and you gather all this information and then all of a sudden, they say, Patricia, we want you to buy the business. Is that is that what had happened? Tell us about how that all came about. I mean, you, you had a, a, a wonderful education. You had a cultural diversity that most of us never get to experience at, at such a young age. And then all of a sudden, you get this idea. I, obviously, it was through your family that your, your grandfather would like to move out. Please elaborate. Sure. Yeah, I feel like it didn't happen quite that quickly. No, <laughs> that's, that's true. No, so I I grew up with this as part of my life. Um, my grandpa started the business. My grandparents lived next door to me growing up, so I'm very close to them. My mom is a single mom. She was a processing engineer. She truly drives the manufacturing portion of that company since she was um, growing up. I would go into the factory, perhaps on you know Christmas parties or once in a blue moon, and see what was going on. But I grew up in a, a northwest suburb of Chicago that was pretty affluent, upper middle class. No one really worked in manufacturing no. amongst mm-hmm. my friends. No one even had single parents amongst my friends. Oh, is that right? Um, so here I came from a single family house and in manufacturing, but my family always suggested go get an education. And this business that my grandpa started with one machine and as a self-made guy did well when I was growing up as a small business and afforded me the opportunities to go away to college. And I'm very grateful that my family never pushed me to go into the business. I think if I wanted to, they would have allowed it. But at the time, I was open to adventure and a lot of other things. And so I went away to college. I went to Iowa, which 
gave me a totally different perspective on life. Having grown up in a Northwest suburb in manufacturing, we'd travel on the holidays, but you go away to college and essentially the world's your oyster. You can choose whatever you want to do. And I didn't have a family structure that was driving me into a certain career. They just said, do what makes you happy, which is a pretty open-ended question. Very, yes, it certainly is. I explored many options, but I did my degree in in marketing and journalism, and I did the entrepreneurial degree knowing I liked building things, but I wasn't ready to start something on my own. Went away, did my graduate degree, worked in politics for a bit, joined Eli Lilly, where I was fortunate to get great mentors, a great network, launched several drugs and globally and in the U.S., travel the world transition to biotech, which is more of a startup for the pharmaceutical industry, but it's still funded by Wall Street, you know, heavily resourced. And my family didn't ask me to come back and take over this company. In fact, they encouraged me not to. So I... So when did you have that aha moment? I mean... Well, when, when was that? I mean, were you just sitting back having a glass of wine one night reading a book and you were thinking about the issues back at, at home and you thought, I mean, I, I know you've shared this with me, but I, I, I personally don't remember that when, when you had that aha moment. Or you know, what was it about? Please share that with us. Yeah. So I, I think all along in my career, I always looked back to this factory that was a big part of my life and where my family worked and would ask, do you need my help? Do you want me to come back? And my grandpa was that classic owner. It was his baby, command and control style. You know, you'll never know as much about the business as I will. Um, and so I stayed removed from it. But last year in May, I started looking at what would be my next opportunity. I had done the things I wanted to do at the biotech I was working at, and I started to explore other options, um, either going to the creative agencies in New York City that I worked very closely with launching products or going to another biotech. And I decided to throw Matrix 4 into the hat because I had come home over Memorial Day to a cancer conference that was going on in Chicago. And I went home to see my family for a day. And my grandma showed me the financials of Matrix 4. What, she just, just, she just had them in her purse? Well, she, I, no, I, 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 I mean, she, I don't know. Did you she, know, she what, has them. Did she, did she think about that? Did she think, oh, Patricia's coming? It Maybe. sounded like grandma had a plan right. to draw yeah. you in. It, you know what? You know, it sure she, does sound like grandma had a plan. Well, so. so did, what did know, she just say? Patricia, honey, let's sit down. Let's well, have a glass of wine. Here's the financials. <laughs> you want to take a look at them? No, seriously. No, actually, my grandma's, ha- my grandpa's house. Health had declined okay, a bit over the last few years. So 90% of the business went offshore about three and a half years ago. 90, My, 90%. Yes, 90 percent. So can, can you share like what did that sales volume or employee base look like? Well, so they went from doing about 10 million a year wow. to less than a million in sales. Wow. They went from a company that ran pretty fat and happy at about 120 employees to about 10 to 15 employees. Wow. wow. And my grandpa utilized Realized it as a time to retire because uh, he was almost 80. And where you could backfill the business before when the industry was doing really well, there weren't opportunities that were just sitting there to backfill that 90% that went away. And so he stopped going into the office. 
and left it without a succession plan or leadership in place, although two children were in there and a few other longtime employees. He still, my mom won and my uncle as two, but he still kept control of the business. He owned 100% of the shares, but stopped going in. At 80 years old. At almost 80 years old. And a 90% reduction in sales. And so I had had them come out to San Diego when I was um, leading marketing for a biotech. At the time, my grandpa's health was starting to decline. I think once you stop working when you're a self-made guy and used to working a lot of hours and being busy, he was one of those classic Midwesterners, smoked cigarettes, ate dessert every night, meat and potatoes kind of guy. And unfortunately, he had heart failure after the trip out to San Diego. So where he had checked out of the business by almost all accounts, he for sure then started to check out as his health was declining. And my grandma, who's a classic, wonderful 1950s cheerleader, started to check in a little bit, but had no idea what she was looking at. So when I came home, she has to hide smoking because my grandpa had to stop. He had two heart failures. She now smokes in the basement. He doesn't know. <laughs> and she I keep, love it. She keeps every month's financial records of the business in the basement. So we're down there as she's smoking, smoking a cigarette. And she's then saying, look at the financials of the business. And I looked at them and I thought, oh, shit. Yeah, you've got to liquidate this. Yeah, it was bad. It was bad. They had burned through about four million dollars in the Holy bank. God. My grandpa ran it pretty conservatively, so he had no debt on uh, building or machines. Right, had burned through about four million dollars in three years. Was on a burn rate of about a hundred to one hundred fifty thousand dollars a month with no plan in place to turn was it, it around. Was that because of employee costs that he's burning through that much? I think overhead, employee yeah. costs, overhead, yeah. they were still taking a salary. Mm-hmm. You know, they were running it as if they still were doing well. Did they although, feel, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Did they oh, feel okay. urgency though? I mean, no. Okay. No. And I think they didn't because at the time, I think they really were okay with allowing it to go under. I think my grandma would have allowed, liked it because it was one less headache she had. My grandpa was completely checked out and they had two kids in there that were technical experts, but didn't have the ability to drive the business. And so they were just keeping it going status quo with some hope that perhaps work would come. And as we know, that just doesn't happen. Not anymore. It used to. Not anymore. It used to back in the 80s. Yeah. So my grandpa always kept the business with about... 80 to 90% of the business with one customer. He always did that. A classic, classic, you know, classic, classic move. I, you, but it, you don't know how many times I've heard these stories. Yeah. And when that customer would get bought out or go under or the customer would retire, he was able to backfill the business because there was just that much work in manufacturing. He did a good job. He delivered on time. He had great quality. He was cost effective because he never innovated. He never invested in technology and other things. He was a huge fan of volume and low cost. Classic fundamental manufacturing mentality from that era. You say that, and I think of the same exact thing that I went through as a young man growing up in the manufacturing business as well. I mean, it, it's it's like a mirror image. And when I heard your story originally, Patricia, I, I mean, it took my breath away because I've heard the same classic story from so many manufacturing peers over the last decade. It's unbelievable. 
and we need to educate people. The industry, yeah. The industry yeah. and the new people and say, you know, it's not how it was anymore. No, it's not. It's not. We, we have to be more sophisticated. Business has changed radically in the last five years. We can't be, we can't have an eighties mentality anymore. Or you're just, you're just not going to make it. It's you can't have a nineties mentality anymore either. You can't even have a nineties. You can't even have a two thousands technology. So yeah, I mean, yeah, compelling, compelling story. It, 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 it strikes a chord with so many manufacturing, small manufacturing companies in this whole country. So you came in and you said, I'm going to save this business. Yeah. So grandma <laughs> handed the financials and yeah. you went, holy shit, this looks bad. Yeah. And what did you do? Well, so you flew in, your cape flowing to save the business. <laughs> Gosh, I, I only wish it was that easy. Um, no, I went back to San Diego and I was truly evaluating what I would do next. And this was an opportunity that had an expiration date on it. The creative agencies are going to keep going in New York City. Biotech's going to keep flourishing on the West Coast. But this business had limited amount of cash. It was going to go negative. And there's not many times in life where you have the opportunity to take a skeletal structure of a business, a building paid for machines, although not new, paid for, and try to turn it into a business model that's viable and relevant today. And so my head and my heart truly got behind this business. And I thought, I can't get excited about the way my grandpa ran it, where you're just focused on volume and cost effectiveness or cheapest cost. But I can get excited about technology and product development and 3D printing and innovation and manufacturing in the US. Right. And so all new sexy stuff coming yes, up, you know, bringing sexy back yeah, to manufacturing. Yeah, bringing sexy back, baby. I agree. So, I decided that this was something that I had to make a decision to do or it wouldn't be on the table two years from now. And so I resigned at the biotech that I was working at and decided to move back to the beautiful windy city of Chicago and go through a winter and take over this business that was six months from having zero cash in the bank. Wow. Dramatic. Yeah. I mean, so when did, when did you take, what did you actually, what was your first day that you came in and what was the first? Yeah, thing? I would. Lo I would love to hear about that. Yeah, what what happened? Day one. Initially? I want to know about yeah. day one. I mean, I how did you explain to the employees? Did your was your grandma up there? Like, all right, here's Patricia. She's going to save the day. No, there was no communication, no succession plan. In fact, day one, I didn't take a title and I didn't take an office. Because my desire was to get in there, understand what the hell was going on with the business, yep. where we were at, get the people to at least become engaged or empowered again, put together a strategy and a vision. And more than anything, I knew that I was an outsider coming in in my dresses and heels, that I needed to earn the respect of yep. my team. It's huge. And so um, I wasn't as interested in what my title or what my office was going to look like. I was interested in salvaging this business. Wow. So I went in, I talked to the team, I let them know I was going to start helping them. And I think more than anything, you had several legacy employees that had passion for the business and wanted to see direction and a path forward and were kind of just churning water for a few years. They had reduced- They knew. I'm yeah. sure, you know, employees know what's going on. They're not stupid. They feel it. They know it. They just don't want 
to accept it. You want it's easy to stick your head in the sand. It yeah. sure is. And yeah. if you have nothing in, if you have no skin in the game, it's easy to put your head in the sand. I so the day one went fairly well. Did you did you what what did you think when you went home that night and after taking that all in and did you compartmentalize things? What what was the first thing you thought you had to change? Was it you had to market, you had to dump Employees. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Yeah, what what what's what the first was, what major the, change you have to make? First thing that yeah. you said to yourself, I need to do this tomorrow, tomorrow. I, or this has to happen next week. Yeah. What was that one thing? Because I'm sure you know what it is. You know, I wish there was one thing. I've got to tell you though, I felt like I was coming into a house on fire where, you know, there weren't plans in place. There wasn't true understanding of where we were at financially, what customers were even driving the business. No one had really been leading those things. And so I think my first priority was we need to increase revenue because it was operating cash flow negative and at 10% capacity. But it was a mix of, we set two objectives as a team, which was improve internally from an efficiency, processes, et cetera, standpoint and drive business. Because I realized as before I came back, I asked my good friends in market research or at McKinsey and Boston Consulting, can you please give me a report on what's happening in manufacturing in the U.S.? Because if I didn't think there was a viable path forward, I wouldn't have left a successful right. career if, to if, do if, it. If they would have said, it's a bad it's choice, a no you would not exactly. have been. But exactly. they obviously came back and said, there's a, a, a manufacturing renaissance going on. Yeah, that there were positive trends happening in manufacturing in the U.S. They still said you're crazy to go back, but there were positive things. I knew though, I was taking over a business that was still running as if it was in 1970. Wood paneled walls, the place had been smoked in for 40 years, you know, white paint was now stained yellow. The ceiling uh, tiles in the office. Ceiling all tiles, brown, all the yep. old furniture, yep. no new equipment um, in the place. And so it was going to be as much of a redo and a true startup from the inside as well as the outside. So that's where you started. You started on the inside and worked to the outside. I started parallel process, drive it on the inside, drive it on the outside, and hopefully we're going to meet in the middle. So j- just a couple quick questions. You you mentioned that you had two po- two objectives when you came in. One was to improve your operations, improve your internal operations, and then the other one was to drive top-line revenue. So what did you do initially in order to improve the operations of the company? We got rid of about 500,000 pounds of obsolete resin, two tons of steel. We started repainting. It was really important for me from a cultural standpoint and from a perception and where we were heading from a positioning standpoint as a brand to start. Get rid of the garbage. Yeah. Get rid of the garbage. Clean house. Be more innovative and relevant and then get connected in the industry. So I started looking at what um, associations are around, who's in manufacturing, started connecting with the customer base that we had, started talking to potential customers, just started to get really active. So so to drive revenue, you started making phone calls to your customer base? Meeting them, phone calls. Were they receptive to you? Yes, very receptive. And, but I knew that the business that was in there was mostly transactional. It was 10% 
you know, when the 90% left. So most of those customers didn't have a lot of product development, have the ability to bring in more business. There wasn't a lot of more revenue. No. So most of it was going to come from top line growth. So identifying new customers, new opportunities, starting to build relationships with those people, starting to build brand awareness and equity in manufacturing because no one knew who Matrix 4 was. Mm -hmm. We never did sales and marketing. In fact, when I did my degree in marketing, my grandpa said it was a waste of money to do a four-year degree in marketing because it was like voodoo magic. That's how a lot of manufacturers think or did think at that time. I mean, it's crazy. It it just, that's how they thought. That was their thought process. Don't worry, honey, the phone's going to ring. Yeah. It's all going to be okay. Hang a sign outside the door and work's going to come. They knock on your door. My dad used to- Take an ad out in the yellow pages. (laughs) (laughs) My dad used to tell- we should put an ad in the Tribune because saying that we have open machine time. I'm serious. Honest to God. He used to say, we'll put a, we'll put a two-line ad in the Chicago Tribune saying we have open machine time and the business will come. <laughs> yeah. Paying $100 a week. I love week. it. Yeah. Seriously. So I, 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 can, I can totally sympathize with to what you heard and what you felt as a, as a, a new person coming into the industry because – it's so true, and I, I've heard these stories often. So you have increased the top line revenue because it sounds like you went from ten employees. You're now at about twenty five employees. Yes. Yeah, so we have increased the business four times since I took over Great. ten 400%. months ago. Four hundred percent. Wow! Yeah. Awesome. Congratulations. But we still have a long way to go, and and we truly are a startup completely changing the business model of this company from the inside out, getting more engaged up front versus on the back end where it's just commoditized and you're competing on price. We want to be that value-add partner that can get engaged in the design and engineering. I bought a 3D printer to help support that phase of the business. Okay, for prototyping and stuff like that. And short-term runs, right? Where if you don't have a million widgets going out the door, it may not make sense to build a tool. You can just 3D print. So those those um, the staff that you had that was there when you originally started, they must be believers in you now. I'm grateful for the team that I have. Absolutely, yeah. I um, I think that they were absolutely loyal to the business and loyal to what it was when my grandpa ran it, and I've been amazed to see them transition from what was a traditional manufacturing company to getting engaged in a startup culture, which is very different. Great. I think this time is a good time to stop, and certainly I'm enjoying this conversation we're having with you, and again, reiterating your story, and I'm sure our listeners, when they listen to this, will uh, agree. I I think what we'd like to do is maybe invite Patricia back for a part two interview and let us know what what's happened in the first 12 months i think our in our listeners i know i would like to know that as well what's happened with with the business in the last 12 months since you've been there and, yeah maybe uh, let us know what she's learned yeah, during those I'm first sure, 12 months I'm that sure. could help out our I'm sure it's our, the making chips audience absolutely so with that uh, i think we're going to wrap up this episode of making chips again remember that jason and i are here just to equip you with a lot of good manufacturing knowledge uh, love hearing everybody's story, what they what they're doing. If you have any pains within your companies, please let us know. Go to makingchips.com. All the information is there. If you want to uh, read about Patricia and uh, her company, 
we'll have all the appropriate links. Uh, again, all of our social sites are there as well, and there's even a phone number that you can call in and leave us a message. We would be happy to address any issues, concerns, or any future things you'd like us to talk about. With that, Jason. Bam. What does my dad always say? If you're not making chips, you're not making money. Amen. Bam. This podcast exists to improve the manufacturing industry. We want to hear from you, the owners, managers, leaders, and engineers from the metalworking nation. What ideas do you want to share and what keeps you up at night? We want you to take something away from this podcast that you can use to improve your company, your team, and yourself. So let us know what you want to hear and we'll see you next time on Making Chips. I'm not a 55 <laughs> plus white man. So just for the record, Jim, you're not. Oh, sorry, Jim. <laughs> well, maybe not quite. You both look under 40. Thank you. I, Are you I putting feel... me in the same category as him? <laughs> I might nice. be. How dare you? <laughs> now I'm smiling. I'm so glad we had her on the show today. All right, let's oh, go. Yeah. Carrie, adjust that how you will. Uh, anyway.